We're going to read from God's Word, and uh, it should be familiar to you. Uh, we have been in the same passage uh, for five weeks now, so I'm going to read it for the fifth time to you this morning. It is Mark chapter 8, verses 34 uh, to Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, and this is God's Word. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So we are into the final week uh, of our Follow Me series. Over the past five weeks or so, I have managed to offend BMW owners, runners, okay, that was a particular highlight, and people who love to hashtag live their best life, right? That's, that's the list. Actually, I was getting in the car this morning to drive to church, and Joy said, as, as we got in and we were kind of coming down there, and she said, okay, what aspect of our life are you going to overshare about us this morning, right? So I've been offending. My wife as well has been offended. Runners, it feels like you took it the worst, right? So many messages from people with pictures of them running, right? You're a very soft bunch, okay? I mean, by all means, go on and run your measurable 5Ks. I couldn't care less. It's none of my business, right? So let's see who else we can offend this morning, right? Jokes. We've been, if you're dropping in with us, if this is your first week with us, um, we have been in a series called Follow Me, okay? And it's been based off the passage that we've just read. And really, it's been intended to dig into Jesus' words, okay? Dig into that short passage, which really is speaking about the heart of discipleship. The question is, what is the nature of discipleship, right? We hear lots about it. There are tons of courses, lots of books out there. We read lots about it. It's a buzzword in the Christian church at this moment in time. But what is the nature of discipleship? And so we dug into Jesus' words, and these were them. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So discipleship in Jesus' words in this short verse is made up of desire. Whoever wants to be my disciple, there is a desire element to our discipleship. We are organisms that follow our loves, right? Love, passion, desire rules our life. We follow it. It orients us. And so the first thing if we're going to follow Jesus is we got to want to follow Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple, then denial. We must deny themselves. That's key. Self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment. They must take up their cross. There is a discipline to following Jesus, daily choosing what it means to follow him. And finally today, follow me. The title of the series, Follow Me. Discipleship in Jesus' words, finally, is also about direction. Desire, denial, discipline, and today, direction. And the thing is that every, the church in every generation has its hallmarks, doesn't it? 
We are as fatty as any section of the world, really, when it comes down to it. The church is just as fatty as everywhere else, aren't we? So each generation will be reading certain things at the same time. They'll be listening to certain music at the same time. Right now, we'll be listening to the same podcasts at the same time. We have hallmarks in each generation. The standard Northern Irish Christian right now definitely owns an oi hat and a mad log bag. He will be borderline obsessive with third wave coffee and he will be liking all the relevant Instagram pastors, right? Have I got it right? Have I kind of characterized us about right in there? That's the hallmarks. But the one from my childhood was the WWJD bracelet, right? That was the mark. If you didn't have one of those, were you even a follower of Jesus, right? That's how it worked. I was actually sure that I still had one in a box somewhere in my house. I was like digging through last night trying to find my WWJD bracelet. If you were a Christian kid in the 90s, it was essential, along with some other things. Going to a delirious gig for your first concert, manifest once a month to pick up girls. We know you did it. And so on and so on, right? Those of you that are in your 20s are like, what is he on about? He is so old, right? I get it. And the thing is, I'm joking about it, right? But actually, the story about the WWJD bracelet is amazing. And I bet most of us don't really know it. You see, the term WWJD, it finds its source, actually, in a man called Charles Sheldon. He was born in 1857 in America before training and going on to become a pastor in the Central Congregational Church in Kansas. And early on in his Christian life, okay, during his theological education around that time, when he was at seminary, he became committed to something that he called untheological Christianity. Now, by that, I don't mean the untheological Christianity that most of us fall into at times, right? Whenever we decide, well, I don't think I'll do that. I'll just do this, right? I don't mean that. When he said untheological Christianity, it meant that he became committed to the deep conviction that Christianity ought to result in a transformed life of love, justice, compassion, and equality. And so for the rest of his life, he lived, he taught, and he ministered into a life formed by that. The actual phrase, WWJD, all right, it was one that he wrote that, that was in a novel called In His Steps. It's actually sold well over 20 million copies around the world, right? And it was all about the story of a man who asked one simple question, what would Jesus do? See, everything that came up in his life, big, small, trivial, tomorrow's decisions, what would Jesus do? And that's where it came from. See, Sheldon's whole life became taken by the idea of following Jesus, like following Jesus in way, following him faithfully. A life not governed by deep theology or doctrine or anything like that, but by a fixed sense of living, not just thinking or reading or saying, actually living more like Jesus. It changed the whole course of his life and changed the course of lots of other people's lives. Why? Because it was all about direction. That simple phrase that most of us wore on our arms, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It changed the whole course of that man's life because it was all about direction. And as we land this series today, we discover that discipleship has a direction. Follow me, Jesus says. It's not just meandering. It's not just go where you want. It's follow me. And this has huge implications in our world, doesn't it? Because we live in a world where, if we're honest, autonomy is king, isn't it? 
I decide the direction of my life. I decide what's going on. My passions, my desires, the things I do and I don't want to be and have and all the rest. I decide. It's not follow anyone else. It's follow me. In a 2000 article in the New York Times, the columnist Alan Wolf wrote this. Americans today are looking inside themselves for the certainties their institutions no longer seem to offer. They do not need to escape from society because society has escaped from them. America, no longer a nation of sheep, has entered the age of autonomy. People may not have a clue about how to survive on the prairie in front of an open campfire, but they are pretty much on their own when it comes to finding a mate, rearing children, choosing a career, or planning retirement. He goes on, though they still believe in God, uphold the family, and love their country, they increasingly decide which God suits best their temperament, which family structure works for them, and whether their country's government is worthy of their trust. He goes on to call it the inner God. And that's us, isn't it? That's the world in which we live, oriented around the inner God. I set the bearing for where I'm going. It's me. We live in a time where my own inner sense of direction is the guiding light for my life. What I feel, what I'm not feeling, that's just not me, so I, I don't do it. So we leave things, we leave people, we start things, we form our lives around our own sense of direction, don't we? And yet Jesus says, follow me. I love that. Here's the question. What or who sets the direction for your life? Being really honest with yourself today. What or who sets the direction for your life? Work, relationships, or the desire to be in one? Finances, health, family, your past experiences, your friends, you? What or who sets the course of your life? Because at the heart of our following Jesus is the need to do just that. Follow, follow him. Jesus is setting the direction for our lives. That's at the heart of discipleship. So high, right? That's what we're going to look at today. Well, I want to say two things about our direction, okay? It's about two things. It's about the way of Jesus, and it's about the way together. The way of Jesus and the way together. The first of them is that our direction is the way of Jesus. These are the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you parent kids, okay, every so often you have this moment when you're like, where did that come from, right? Like something comes out of their mouth or they do something and you're like, where the heck did that come from? And uh, a little while ago, um, when Elle would get really wound up with us about something or if we stopped her from doing something, she eventually one day, she dropped the H-bomb, right? We got the, I hate you, right? 
I know it, it resonated deeply in us, right? We were, we were brutally hurt for a little while after. But our first reaction was like, where did that come from? Like, we never say that sort of thing, right? So where on earth did that come from? And then we thought about it for a little while, and we realized that the film of the moment in her life at that time was Finding Nemo. And there's this moment in Finding Nemo where Nemo says to his dad, I hate you. And we were like, oh, right, that's where it came from. And then recently we were in the kitchen and we were talking about stuff. I don't know what I was talking about, but I said, oh, I really want to do whatever it was. And Elle chirps up. She's in the background eating her dinner. And she's like, Dad, I want never gets. <laughs> and we're like, where did that come from? Like, that's definitely not one of our phrases. Is that like your mom's? No. Is that Grant? No. Like, where did that come from? And then we had the answer, Tenga Tenga Tales, right? That like African cartoon on BBC about animals where the lion says, I want never gets. And every so often you're asking yourself, right? Who is raising your kids? Is it me? Is it TV? Is it like some other aspect or influence in their lives? Is it kids in school? Like who, who's raising them? Where do, they, where do they pick this stuff up from? And more importantly than just their language or things like that, who is teaching them to dream and what of? And I say that today because the writer of the Hebrews in this short passage, those three verses, is describing that our direction, our following Jesus, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus involves us having a whole new picture of the world. You see, the question is, which picture of the world in our lives do we come back to whenever we try to see the way forward? Hebrews 12 has those famous words, fix your eyes on Jesus. And all of the kind of connotations and, and kind of the, the, the passage in, in terms of its emphasis, right? It's athletic, okay? Lots of these passages in the New Testament where that there was a whole theme there because of kind of the influence of the Greeks and, and they were really into athletics and the Olympics and all of that sort of stuff, right? So you get these kind of athletic kind of themes in, in passages quite a bit. And this one is athletic. It's about a race. And in this case, a race of endurance. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, right? And so we're running, okay? If you accept the analogy of the writer, okay, we're running and we're in a race and we know that to live life as a follower of Jesus means a life of perseverance. It means a whole, this whole phrase is essentially getting at our tendency to look elsewhere. Like when we're running, the tendency not to fix our eyes on a destination, but to get distracted with looking Elsewhere, you see, most of us can endure focus for a short space of time, can't we? But over a lifetime, a lifetime, a race marked by perseverance, it's very hard not to find ourselves looking left and looking right, isn't it? In your own life, your following of Jesus. I don't know if you've just become a Christian. I don't know if you followed him for 30 years, 50 years. I don't know how long you've been a follower of Jesus today, but I'm pretty sure all of us can attest to times in our life when the things to our left and to our right got way more of our attention than Jesus did. Jesus says, if you're gonna run the race that is marked for you, not for anybody else, I'm not talking about what their race is or what their race is or what their race is. I'm talking about your race, the race that is marked out for you. Don't look left. Don't look right. Fix your eyes on me. Don't be drawn by the stuff that is swirling around us, but fix your eyes, right? This is about vision. It's about vision, isn't it? 
when you learn to mountain bike, I used to race mountain bikes. And when you learn to ride downhill mountain bikes, and I'm, I'm told it's the same thing with motorcycles, right? What they tell you is, don't look at the corner that you're in. Look at the next corner. Because if you look at the corner that you're in, you'll almost certainly crash. But if you're looking to the next corner, the bike follows, okay? So if you come out of a corner and I'm looking at the next one, the bike just goes where I'm looking. And Jesus says, if you're going to run the race marked out for you, it's about the vision that you have because your life will go where your vision is. This is about vision. And that's because we live in line with what has captured our hearts, right? We explored that in the first week when we talked about desire. We live in line with our passions, with the thing that has our vision. We live out our vision for the good life. And here's the thing, right? We're living in a time where there are constantly competing visions of just what the good life is, don't we? Callie Lassen writes this, American culture is no longer created by the people. A free, authentic life is no longer possible in America today. We are being manipulated in the most insidious ways. Our emotions, core values, and personalities are under siege from media and cultural forces too complex to decode. A continuous product message has woven itself into the very fabric of our existence. Most most North Americans now live designer lives, sleep, eat, sit in a car, work, shop, eat, watch TV, sleep again. I doubt there's more than a handful of free, spontaneous minutes anywhere in that cycle. We ourselves have been branded. And then she goes on. Dreams, by definition, are supposed to be unique and imaginative, yet the bulk of our population is dreaming the same dream. It's a dream of wealth, power, fame, plenty of sex, and exciting recreational opportunities. We live in a time with a million competing visions. So when Jesus says, fix your eyes on me, he's not the only person saying, fix your eyes on me. He's calling us to follow him, calling us not only to fix our eyes, but our whole imaginations on him in a world that is competing, not just for your life, but for your dreams, for your dreams, competing to tell you how to live and what to buy and where to go. And the thing is that it seeps into us powerfully, doesn't it? And eventually we stop believing that Jesus can transform things and instead we just settle for like slightly tweaking things, don't we? We settle for the plausible when Jesus is trying to help us see what is possible. I mean, just think for a second, right, about the Lord's Prayer. You've prayed it hundreds if not thousands of times in your life just think about it thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread right look at the order that Jesus teaches us to pray where does he start he starts with the kingdom first we pray into and lean on the resources of the kingdom before we get to our stuff the truth is that most of us when we pray We pray something along the lines of, Lord, give us our daily bread and hopefully that your will be done on earth. Most of us pray that way, don't we? When Jesus is saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. In other words, our prayer becomes, Lord, in my life, may it be as heaven wants. In other words, when you pray, pray, Lord, may it be as heaven wants. Jesus is trying to teach us here to ask God to transform our hearts and our desires, to transform how we see the world, transform our imaginations so that we might be able to pray over our lives, our circumstances, our city, our stuff. May it be as heaven wants. 
to have a direction that is in the way of Jesus, we need to fix our eyes on him and find our imaginations there. Tom Wright, writing about this particular picture, says this, the point is to keep our eyes, or rather our imagination, fixed on the finishing line and on the one who is at the center of that great cloud of witnesses waiting there to greet you. It's our imaginations. That's the thing, right? When so much stuff in our world speaks more about what you shouldn't be, right? We cancel people rather than lifting them up, don't we? It's easier to break things down than it is to build them up. We live in a world constantly affected by negative vision, right? Rather than positive vision. Fixing our eyes on Jesus means fixing our eyes on someone who has form, right? It's not an amorphous thing. It's not like, it's not just out there and not understandable. It's Jesus. Jesus was sure of who he was right from his first words. And we see in vivid color what he looked like and what he was passionate about, right? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Pioneer and perfecter. Why is that important? It's important because that's the one that we fix our eyes on. And so often, you know, we think about Jesus as the pioneer, don't we? The one who makes a way, right? We think about that aspect of Jesus' life. But you know, the thing I think of most when I read this passage is not the part that he's the pioneer, because he is. He is all that. Without him, there is no way. It's that he is the perfecter. In other words, he's the one who finished and I don't know about you, but the tendency in my life is to start way more things than finish things. I don't know how many of you in the room, I'm not going to take like a sample audience because it'll be like hold your hands up to be ashamed. I've taken out gym memberships before in January, went about twice and never went through with, you know, the actual plan to get fit again, right? We start things. We rarely finish. I was meant to be decorating our kitchen. It's like 95% there. There's like little touch-ups, but I just can't bring myself to finish the job. So it's like, it'll do, right? We start things. We rarely finish. But Jesus is the one that did. When we look at him, we see the perfecter, the one who finished. We're looking at the one who saw it through. The passage uses the name Jesus too, right? It's not Christ, it's Jesus. That's his human name. In other words, the one who understands what it is for us to be human, the one who knows what it is to live in a world of competing vision, who knows what it is to suffer and struggle and wrestle. It is the one who finished and now calls us to look to him and live toward him. How much of our lives are lived by starting and not finishing? But not Jesus. He finished and because he did, he gives us someone, somewhere to point our lives towards. So what does that look like? Real talk, obedience. I know we don't like that word. I know we live in a time that doesn't like to hear things like that. But the truth is, right? It's easy to say and it's very hard to do. Most of us already know if you're a Christian and you've read the Bible a few times a great deal about how you're meant to live, don't we? Uh, Charles Sheldon himself, the WWJD guy, he wrote this, it's easier indeed to give assent to the Westminster Confession of Faith than it is to just love one's enemies. And it's true, isn't it? The way that we know that we're living in line with the vision is to begin to be obedient to that vision. 
It's often easier to have big theological convictions, right, and know all the stuff and live like, you know, you're a walking book than it is to live the way that Jesus points our lives to be. Karl Barth wrote this, each act of obedience by the Christian is a modest proof, unequivocal for all its imperfection, of the reality of what he attests. Every time we do what Jesus calls us to do, every time we look like the way he calls us to look, every time we make choices and decisions that are in line with his way for our lives, we are attesting ourselves to the vision that has captivated our lives. I understand that we, love, we live in a time that doesn't like the idea of obedience or submission or self-denial. But the truth is that the way of Jesus means living consistently with the way that he calls us to live. And every act of obedience is a hopeful act because it stands our weight on how we see the world. Facebook and Instagram went out this past week. Uh, you probably noticed, right? Which was good news because for about six hours, I didn't have to read anything about vaccines, right? And here's the thing, right? I know because I was talking to a number of you through the week about the fact that like you were without WhatsApp and, and all of that sort of stuff for about six hours. For this brief moment that you were able to begin to imagine a world another way, right? For this brief moment, my phone didn't ping every like 35 seconds with something of zero importance that was going on in the world. And I know that some, well, some of you maybe thought it was a nightmare. I was talking to my dad and he was like, it was terrible. I was trying to post something and I couldn't post it. And I'm like, dad, whatever you had to say, it wasn't that important, right? But for about six hours, we got to see or think about the world another way. We got to live our lives with our phones out of the way because they couldn't really connect to anyone anyway. Give us this moment to dream about the world another way. And discipleship is about direction. It's about Jesus' way. And in a world of competing visions, we need to see him and allow his vision of life to transform how we see the world from what is merely plausible to what is possible. And see that obedience is the way that we begin to demonstrate that possibility. The first thing that direction means is that we live the way of Jesus. But secondly, direction is about the way together. It's about the way of Jesus, but it's also about the way together. And our passage in Hebrews has this repeat feature, right? Uh, it refers to us, our, we, okay, repeatedly throughout the passage. It's plural, right? And that should come as no shock to you. Because when you become a Christian, you instantly become a part of a community called the church, right? I realize that comes as no comfort to some of you this morning. You're like, oh, great. Look at the state of what I, have, I now belong to. Because we can be burned out, beat up, disappointed, disinterested by it all, okay? I understand. I get it, right? I get that belonging to the church is not always an encouragement. It should be, but it's not always. Sometimes people leave us reviews for our church on Facebook, okay? I'm always dreading it whenever I see like, you have a new review on my own. No. Partially it's wrong because we are Central Belfast and very often people who go out on a night out to Belfast tag at Central Belfast. So we get all these like comments about absolutely bluttered at Central Belfast. <laughs> I'm like, it's not the kind of church we run, right? But people sometimes leave us reviews, okay? If you're interested, please don't be. But if you're interested, Central on Facebook has two, okay? I'm going to read one of them to you. One reviewer said this, this ministry is going places. It is pointing to just one place, heaven. Five stars. Yep, 
Five-star reviews, guys. That's, you're sitting in a five-star church this morning, right? <laughs> Just so you know, it doesn't get any better than this. Anyway, generally, though, the comments are good, but that isn't always the case. Occasionally, I seem to get lumped with negative things on social media. Don't look that up either because it won't do you any good and you won't trust me anymore. So anyway, the thing is there are Google reviews, genuine Google reviews for most churches under the shining sun. We also have some Google reviews for our church, right? I'll give you a snapshot of some of the ones that reviewed one star, okay? One star reviews for a church, okay? This first one, one star, the paninis were terrible. Are you sure you went to a church? I don't know. Anyway, next one. One star. The worship leader looked like he had just got done mowing the, mowing the yard. I mean, noobs, you do occasionally look agricultural, it has to be said. Next one. Honestly, one of the worst masses I have ever been to. Boring, uninspired, sloppy, and irrelevant. One star in block capitals, okay? Next one. This is a liberal and very specifically middle-class clutch of all races. Intellectually interesting, but cliques abide. And it's actually indifferent to the stranger in its midst. Outside of their middle-class comfort zone, for those too radical or avant-garde or poor or different, there is no authentic welcoming. By the way, there's no punctuation in this review. Minister is often oblivious, but music is good. Sad, poor use of space. Church is half, dem- half empty, not on fire. What a brutal review. Finally, one a bit closer to home from a church in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. This is what the review genuinely said. One star, I don't do churches. <laughs> well, why did you go? What is wrong with you? Church, right? Sometimes we struggle, don't we? Sometimes we struggle. Any room that is full of people from every walk of life, people incredibly different from you, that you are called, you are forced to be in relationship with, at times can be a challenging space, can't it? Like not just in the times where we've been hurt or something's happened or someone's done something, just in the general being together. Church can be hard. And yet the call to direction was corporate. And it's like it doesn't back off. I mean, the epistles, reading through Paul's words, the New Testament churches, like again and again and again and again and again. It's the way together. You don't get away with solitary Christianity. The Bible doesn't know anything about it. It's the way together. And there are those words. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us, with perseverance, run the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And it's always been that way. For rabbis of the time of Jesus, they had followers, not follower, followers, groups of students whom they taught, led, and lived alongside. And then when you think about Jesus, right, and those words, he chose 12 that they might be with him. And then even looking to Paul, right, He was synonymous not just with how he led, but who he led. Barnabas, Silas, John, Mark, Timothy, on and on and on and on and on. All these people. You see, the call to direction is one that we're called to together. It's a call to shared life in the one direction. Though we can be so very different from one another in every possible way, we share that same picture, that same imagination for the world as it is being remade. That same vision of Jesus. And I'm reminded in leadership so very often, right? When stuff comes along, there's challenges, something opens up, or there's just stuff in in our way, right? I'm reminded so very often that what Jesus is calling us to be and do in Belfast, right? 
what he's calling us to be and do is very often in the room. Because it's, it's not in me. As much as I might believe a lot of the time that I can do everything and anything, I can't. But this room can. The gifts, the talents, the faith, the surrender, the abilities in the room are very often what Jesus is calling to rush out and meet the needs of Belfast. They're not in me singular. They're not even in just our leadership team. They're in the room. They're in the body. And this is the body. We're on the way together, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not on church politics, not on just being better than some of the other churches that are around us here in the city, not on losing ourselves to arrogance or pride or losing ourselves if things are going well, not on trying to be something we aren't, not on being overcome by the million other visions of life in our time that might more easily be in our minds. It's the way together. It's that this group of people here and the global church, it's that right here, we fix our eyes on Jesus. So the thing to do always is look around. So often we come to church with our eyes down. We come to the things in our life with our heads down, in our stuff. And that's okay, I get it, right? Life is not easy. But the first thing you do when you arrive is you get your eyes up and you look around because we're called to the way together. So when we become part of the church, right, we look around the room to find that we are the ones, we're on the way together. But then there's this other element to it as well. It's not just in the room. It's beyond the room. That line, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You see, when you become part of the church, right? You don't just become part of what is happening here and now. You also become part of all that has went before you. I believe in the saints' communion is what we sing whenever we sing that version of the creed, isn't it? I believe in the saints' communion. What that means is we believe that we're joining not just with all of us, but with all the ones who went before us. The truth is that we Christians walk well-worn paths. You see, our following, our following, it has a history. In Psalm 132, right, it's one of those songs of the ascent that we know them. This is the songbook that, uh, as we kind of believe now, it's the songbook that the people of God would have known and sang on their way to festival year after year after year, right? It's a long psalm, so I'm not going to read it to you now, but if you've got time, whenever you get home, just read Psalm 132. And because of how this song was probably sang, right, as they marched, as they walked together on their way up, they made a physical walk up to the temple, right? Because of how it was sung, it's full of history, which is not surprising. If you go to a football match or a rugby match, we sing about history, don't we? Victories, things like that. And so that's what they did. It's full of history. They look back. The first 12 or so verses are rooted in the word that appears in the first verse. Remember. In other words, they are looking back. And then it flips. And the last five or so verses become rooted in the words, I will. In other words, our looking back and our looking forward are interconnected. And I say that today because our faith to follow, it isn't just rooted in what is here and now. Our faith to follow reaches back, way back, right back, to be rooted in historical fact, which helps give us a bright hope for tomorrow. 
we can look back for our future. And the thing is, right, life is coming at us fast, isn't it? I was talking to some of the guys in the coffee bar there before church and someone told me that they thought September was about six years long. And I can relate to that, right? It just never seemed to end. Lots of people around the church just felt like they were getting beat up. Joy and I just felt like September was constantly getting the better of us, right? And our time is full of challenges which so often interact with what you believe and who you say you are day after day after day. Life is coming at you fast. And the truth is, that we need more data than what our own life and experience can give us if we're ever going to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Like we need more data than just what I feel right now. If I'm going to walk out who I say I am, if I'm going to walk out what Jesus is calling me to be, I need more data than just how I feel, than what I've known this month, than what I'm in today. I need more data than that. Eugene Peterson writing on it says this, a Christian who has David in his bones, Jeremiah in his bloodstream, Paul in his fingertips and Christ in his heart will know how much and how little to put on his own momentary feelings and the experience of the past week. And then he goes on to talk about that obedience that we dug into a little bit earlier on, right? When he says this, Passages like Psalm 132 give us a vision into the future so that we can see what is right before us. If we define the nature of our lives by the mistake of the moment or the defeat of the hour or the boredom of the day, we will define it wrongly. We need roots in the past to give obedience ballast and breadth. We need a vision of the future to give obedience direction and goal. And they must be connected. The way is the way together. Together with what and who God has gifted us to, to each of us in the room with Jesus always in view. But not only that, not only with who we are in the room, but beyond the room. I get to join well-worn paths with family who have went before me, that cloud of witnesses, knowing that I don't just look back to get strength to stand, but I look back to get the courage to leap hearing the words of the prophet Isaiah all of those years ago when he said, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way, walk in it. This is the way, walk in it. The way of Jesus and the way together that's what direction is all about in the nature of discipleship. And just as we wrap up today and we draw this whole series to a close, you know, our heart whenever we started to pull this series together, right, was to put simple words into your hands and my hands to help us ask ourselves questions in the days that are ahead about how my following of Jesus is going, right? Because I know that every so often we begin to evaluate, right? Either you go out with that person who's on fire for Jesus and you just sit down the whole time feeling awful about like, oh, I wish I felt like that. Or you go to a conference and it's you that gets fired up and you're like, well, why did I never feel like that before? Or whatever is going on in your life, right? It's helpful to have words that can help you think a bit about like, how's it going? Like, has something else caught my heart? Am I still living with what I can to follow Jesus? What's going on in my life? And the heart at the start was to give you easy words 
that in those seasons, right, times, I know that, for example, the new year for lots of people is where you kind of do a bit of evaluating, right? Gym membership is especially high in January. When you sit down and begin to think about, well, what did my last year look like and what's my next one going to be like, right? Maybe if you only do it once a year, now you've got four words. That when you think about your following of Jesus, first you might think about your desire. First you might remember that you're made for loves. You might think that I don't love Jesus anymore, but actually what's just happened is that your love has got redirected onto something else. That you might start with desire. You might ask yourself about denial. You might, it turns out that you'll never find your true self by looking for yourself. You might need to be reminded, as we all do, that I need to lose myself to find myself. That you'll remember discipline. That we need to learn rhythms of grace and we need to learn it through rhythms. And finally, that you might remember direction. That we have a vision and it is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, to know his way and to know that it is together. You know, very often um, uh, we use certain words to describe those who have followed Jesus well. If you've been to any number of funerals in your life for people who were believers throughout their life, you'll have heard the word faithful, right? It nearly always appears at funerals, faithful followers of Jesus. And so often when we hear that word and we kind of take it in ourselves, right, it's kind of a stodgy word, isn't it, right? It's kind of like dependable, you know, nobody ever wants to be the dependable guy, do they? Like when someone says, oh yeah, he's great, he's really dependable, you're like, oh no, don't relegate me to that place, right? Faithful kind of sometimes sits in that space, solid, dependable, right? But not given to rocking the boat. Like faithfulness doesn't tend to get you into trouble, does it? And yet, you know what? Faithfulness is a word that is born out of the same species as the word faith. Faithfulness and faith, they come from the same word. In fact, the translation between English and Greek, okay, those two words are interchangeable. You could literally drop them in anywhere in your Bible. The New Testament, faithfulness and faith could be dropped in in the same places. And we often think of faith as risk-taking and exciting and stepping into the unknown, don't we? Faith is a courageous thing. And faithfulness we often think of as trustworthy over time, don't we? What if it is better to think of faithfulness as faith over time? 